Okay, let's go ahead and start. We're uh, about 10 after 7 here, so sorry we're running late. But, uh, we were uh, dealing with the decrees. Hey, there's Audrey. Uh, decrees last week. We didn't get all the way through it. Right. And uh, I think where we left off was where God has uh, numbered all the ones that He has chosen for ordained. Uh, that number will not increase or decrease. I think that's what we were talking about, right? And um, so, kind of going off of that, the the number five one uh, that would be in that area of decrees, as there are seven, I believe, yeah, that are in the uh, confession. And whenever I say that, it's a Westminster Confession, or also it's our confession that we have here that fits in with our church too, uh, a little more readable in, in a lot of ways. Uh, the, the uh, congregational confession that we have is the colonial one. And uh, so we have uh, one here that's called, as we deal with decrees, dealing with um, God has chosen out of His free grace and love without any cause in the creature. It's number five. And what we might do is uh, do as we have been doing. We'll just read that together. Uh, and it's, it starts right here, those of mankind. Those of mankind that are predestinated to life, God, before the foundation of the world, laid according to His eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will has chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of His mere free grace and love without any other thing in the creature as a condition or cause moving Him thereunto. So nothing caused Him to choose who He wanted to do that. There wasn't anything in the depraved creatures. They are condemnable. They have nothing in themselves. They have no faith that He would see to choose. They have um, nothing without the favor of God. So he, cho- he chose to save some, and uh, the choice can only come from Him. Right? So this is a matter of free grace. As it says here, it's free grace. Uh, it's all His love, His mercy. God owes nothing to His creatures at all. And, of course, that's something that we uh, very well identify with. Uh, We won't spend a lot of time on that particular point. We've gone through those Scriptures. You can think of Ephesians 1. You can think of Romans 8, 28 through 30, and uh, 2 Timothy and 1 Thessalonians 5, and Romans 9 through 11. Uh, You could go on and on, but those are some of the the verses that go along with that. Anything we, we receive... Uh, whether it be common grace, whether it be special grace, it's all from Him, isn't it? Then there's a sixth one. And we'll move on with the decrees here. And this is really God appointed His elect unto glory and He foreordained the means. So it just kind of follows suit with what we had. Uh, again, as I as I do this, um, I'll probably move this rather quickly. <laughs> it's the only way I can get bigger uh, words up there until I can get it on some kind of PowerPoint. That would be a lot better, wouldn't it? Uh, as God has appointed the elect unto glory, so He has, by the eternal and most free purpose 
of His will foreordained all the means thereunto, wherefore they who are elected being fallen in Adam are redeemed by Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by His Spirit, working in due season, are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith unto salvation." Neither are any other redeemed by Christ or effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. So these decrees, this section kind of keeps going with along the same line, just kind of builds up a little bit more. Uh, some people ask if God has already predestined people, then why does He need to have the Gospel preached? Uh, well, He predestines the goal and also the means of that goal. God provides a grace. He executes it. He executes it through the preaching of the Word. And that's what He's decided to do. And the regenerating of the Holy Spirit. So it's the Word of God and then the Spirit of God. And then He uses men as He works through us. He uses people to uh, attract people to His Gospel. Prayer is the same thing. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, so he's, he's decreed every means to the end. And of course, he uses prayer to bring about his purpose. And he uses people to pray to bring that about. And yet he's sovereign. You know, he doesn't need to do that. But that's what he has so uh, decreed to do. And I think it is um, really amazing that he would have his creatures be in on his plan and his purpose. Um, in, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, uh, I think it says, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's out of Isaiah 46.10, by the way. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13, we could turn there. Some of these are old hat passages that we're familiar with, but it's this is just setting us up with the next section because if you look at God's decrees, then we see how He works His decrees out. And those next two deals with uh, creation after decrees and providence. That's how he works out his decrees. And so as he sets this up with all this, um, it helps us a little bit further. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So, he, he not only chooses us, He uses the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, to set us apart, and then also grants us the faith. It's our faith in that truth is how we are sanctified and set apart. Uh, so he did it from the very beginning, but you can see there again, he has appointed and foreordained the means how we're going to get to glory. He's sanctifying us. And uh, so we're totally dependent upon him, yet we yield to him as he works in us, and we work that out. Philippians chapter 2. So God is immutable, he's invincible as far as his decrees are concerned. And Scripture plainly teaches that man is a responsible creature. Man is responsible. He is to do actions. And he's answerable for the actions that he so does, even though God is the one controlling all of this. 
And if our thoughts are formed from God's Word, all of this does is that we reach the ends. We reach the goal that He has and that He freely grants. So, Barb, you talk about prayer. Real prayer is actually indicted by the very Spirit of God. We know that He, you know, there's a, there's a groaning that the Holy Spirit uh, works as far as our prayer life is concerned. And, but, you know, so there's God working in us, but there's the heart cry of His people. We have the, it's, it's like breathing. You know, Christians have to pray. Just like a person has to breathe, we have to pray. That's, that's a, an ongoing communion with God. So there's prayer. How about the, the Scripture? Scriptures are inspired Word of God, so that comes from God. Yet, the, He used men to write the Scripture down. He, you know, he could have just done some kind of automatic writing, or he could have just wrote it on walls for us, right? Wrote it on our eyelids as, as, as scroll to the next verse. Huh? But he chose men, the apostles and, and prophets, to write this down. And then you think of Jesus Christ. So there's prayer. Uh, there is the Word of God. How about Jesus Christ? Jesus is God, right? He's both God and man. He's omniscient, yet we see in Luke 2.52 that He increased in what? Wisdom. He, As He grew as that young man, grew up, He was increased in wisdom. That's an amazing thing to think about, isn't it? There's God learning. Right? He learned obedience, Philippians 2 says. So He was almighty, yet He was crucified in His weakness as far as being in the flesh. He was the prince of life, but the prince of life died. <laughs> That's an amazing thing. High mysteries are these, aren't they? So when you get in, these are all dealing with the. These are decrees of God. How could no? How could how could anyone disagree with those kind of decrees that God has? Otherwise, anything less is He's less than God. Then, this is what He desired to do. So the sanctifying work. So that's part six. There's there's one more part to the decrees. The doctrine of the high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending the will of God revealed in His Word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the Gospel. So here you have um, this high mystery. It's to be dealt with prudence and care. Have to be very careful how we uh, use it. I think John Calvin, who is known for uh, the sovereignty of God and, and teaching strongly on the decrees of God and such as we look about, we uh, also realize from him one has to be careful on how far they take any of these things. 
we can take them to uh, another degree which they are not meant to be taken. Uh, they must be preached. The decrees are there. Uh, you wouldn't want to take it to uh, one who is an unbeliever and start talking about these deep decrees of God. You know, start saying, "Well, you have to be elect." You know, they, they have yeah. no idea what what that would mean. Uh, I've heard people say, "Well, I'm not saved because I haven't been elect." Well, how do you know you haven't been elect? Uh, the thing is, the invitation is there, and we are responsible to attend to that. But yet, uh, God's in control of all this. But the Word of God has to be preached. Um, we're responsible to, to use that and do that. Also, it is the most consoling doctrine there is in the Bible. Because in this we see the absolute uh, sovereignty of God and, and how He takes care from uh, eternity past to eternity future. Talking about assurance of salvation when you see that He's done this and He, all things that, when we looked at this last week, all things that He has decreed will come to pass, right? And that was the very first one. Will come. That is assurance, isn't it? If you believe God. Yeah. I have a question. This is in my head and I'm not sure how it got there. Um, I'm not sure if it's something I read or something I heard or something I hallucinated. <laughs> um, we all know that there's a finite number of people that are elect is in what I have wandering around in my head is that there's also a finite number of sins that Christ died for when he died on the cross you know God knew what that number was and is that what is what am I thinking I don't know of any scripture that would be dealing with. I mean, he he died for the he died for the elect, really. Although the, that gospel is given to everybody, we don't know who they are. We're to give it to everybody. It's offer, and he commands everyone to repent. But he know we know that he died for our sins. That means he died for every sin. So you add up my sins, your sins, everybody else's sins, all the ones who are elect from. Uh, the very foundation, right? And so those sins are paid for in every aspect. Right. Is that? Are you talking about limited atonement uh, I, when you when you involve election into the right. conversation? In that he died. Who did die? God, Christ right. died for yeah, ultimately. But I was referring to a specific number right. of sins, but I guess that would be one and the same thing. If he knows every single sin that was committed or ever is, he probably has a number for it and that's and the punishment Christ endured was sufficient for that. Right. That's so maybe it's along the same lines, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's all uh, and, and well what's that what's that song say? Jesus paid it all. Right. Um, it's that's been taken care of. Despite the fact that we still sin against him, um, but even those future sins that we will commit have been paid for too. And that's where your Pentecostal theology runs into all sorts of problems because it's like he did, he paid for your sins of your past and right up to present, but if you do some kind of sin like uh, deny him and if you don't, if there are certain sins that you don't confess, now you've turned it into a works, 
if there are certain sins that you don't confess, then that sin is not paid for. That's what it, what it amounts to. That runs into all sorts of doctrinal problems, and uh, no longer do we have our sins all taken care of for. It's just that's in the past. Well, we're in deep trouble if our future sins are not taken care of too. There's a future grace, isn't there? And, but that covers covers it all. So, yeah, but isn't, isn't it great to know that uh, that is what what has happened? It's, he's taken care of it all um, by His infinite wisdom and His goodness. Uh, we get the best assurance that we possibly can have. So, those are the decrees. When you have the decrees, we've laid down a basic foundation now because we started off with how can we know any of this without Scripture? And that's the first chapter that uh, the confession is, is about. And then we looked at really the, the very character and nature of God because of the Scripture, then we know who He is. And then we, uh, of course, went into the decrees and we... Uh, We'll look at the next section, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but it, again, it's another basic foundation. If you get started with Scripture, the best of the confession, or the rest of the confession, really is an exposition of what the Scripture says. From there on down to the rest of the Westminster Confession, or any of the confessions for that matter, the way in which God works out who He is, His eternal decrees, uh, are put forth. And of course you get a lot of doctrines uh, of the Bible that are seen in there. So the next one is creation. And this is how God revealed His purpose. He's, you know, How does He work through means? Okay, well He takes creation. He creates the world, creates the people in it. And uh, so it would probably be good to uh, see how that one reads in this confession. Of course, some of this is dealing with uh, decree of election and then reprobation. We talked about that. It's kind of summing that up. Um, pretty simple. In the beginning, it pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for the manifestation of the glory of His eternal power, wisdom, and goodness to create or make the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days and all very good. So he brings out creation and uh, this is how he works out his eternal decree. How's he going to do it? Well, yeah, he creates. Uh, he reveals his purpose here. We know that God alone is the only possible source of anything. Taking on the fact of what we've seen, now He shows His, his creation, it's His eternal power and everything else about Him. God brings something out of nothing. And that's the ex nihilo, right? Something out of nothing. He brings us into being out of nothing. You know, there you have the scientists and the whole world trying to figure out how we got here, and this is the what uh, what the truth is. And of course, this is based right out of Genesis, isn't it? We're all familiar with uh, with those scriptures. Um, and what's interesting, he says he does it in the space of six days. And when this confession was written, you think of the 1640s. These divines believed in a literal. Six-day creation, 24-hour day, evidently. 
and you hear some of the teachings on this, and they could probably be a little bit of squabble even on that today, but regardless of what people's views on this are today, um, these were in the days of an archbishop, uh, his name was Usher, and he even calculated the time from Adam to the time of Christ, and it was 4,004 years. He took Scripture, uh, of course, took the genealogies. Uh, now, some people say, well, there might have been decades, there might have been centuries, there might have been thousands of years before some of those um, next generations would be. But taking what Scripture says there, he uh, uh, calculated that, he assumed that the genealogies were complete. And, of course, we've dealt with that before. I, uh, I believe this, and I, I personally teach it. In a 24-hour uh, day, Yom uh, is a 24-hour day because uh, when you have numerals before it, for instance, and there are probably many other reasons I don't have to elaborate, I don't think I have to convince, convince you here, but... Um, we can see at that time they had no other reason to believe that it was anything else. It wasn't thousands of years. That's really how it was taken. And I, I think uh, most people who study Reformed theology or who knew some of these divines that had written this had no problem with a 24-hour day. And so when it says that, uh, that's what they mean. And of course, that's coming from Scripture in, in that sense. Um, so, uh, I think that's helpful to know that. Yeah. On the invisible part, did you whether visible or invisible? And all things therein, whether visible or invisible, everything that's here, whether it's elements, uh, things you cannot see, or maybe in. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Definitely, right? He created that, right? That's part of his creation, and that's, that's of course that's why they say that. You know, there are things that uh, that are uh, infinitesimal. You know, things that go beyond us. Whether it goes into bigger things, into outer space, or uh, you think of inner space, just everything. And so it means everything was created by God, and it, it was all very good. Everything. <laughs> Everything. Everything. What? How much? <laughs> of course, we know that the fall came later. Right, I was going to say, you mean all them thorns and thistles and stuff? <laughs> he made that? <laughs> Everything was good, and of course, right. yeah, the fall explains why we have some of those things that we don't really care for. By the Word of God, through the Word of God, from the power of God, were all things created out of nothing, it says. So we move on to that second one. There's three parts here to creation. After God. Where are we? Okay, number two. After God had made all other creatures, He created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, rendering them fit unto that life to God for which they were created being made after the image of God in knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. 
course, he makes all other creatures, and male and female. And, of course, I think we know what we're getting into here when he mentions this man's creation. They have the possibility to not sin, and they have a possibility to sin. Adam and Eve, they were um, innocent. They hadn't sinned. There was a choice there. And so when you think about this, you think of non-passe peccari. They have uh, the possibility to not sin, or passe non peccari. And then they have the passe peccari, the possibility to sin. And of course, um, man in his fallenness, uh, really it's always what? Passe peccari. But when you become a Christian, now you do have the choice. Before you just you you stay in sin. People can choose to do some good things, but they're still in their sin. They're dead in their sin. They're transgressions. But when we become saved, then now we have. Matter of fact, we our inclination with the new nature is desire to not sin, but we still do that. One of these days, we will have the ability to uh, to not sin. It will be impossible to sin, right? And that's the way it was with Jesus whenever he was here. So right now, we're passe peccari. Aren't we also non-passe non-peccari? Non-passe non-peccari would be what? No, no ability to, to not, not sin. sin. What's that mean to you? That we don't have the ability to refrain from sin. So a lost person would be in that state, right. actually. That's, That's really where they're at. And so they really have no choice. They are dead in their sins, as Ephesians 2 would say. Right. It, yeah, you almost have to think about that, right? Um, so that would be unregenerate. Yeah. Right. Man. Right. Okay. The depravity of man there. So, and that's really what our Westminster Confession is is uh, saying here. This is clearly Reformed theology in every element that we hit on the Westminster Confession. Have you noticed that? You clearly see a sovereign God, and you clearly see depraved man without the help of God, and then you see that how one who is been translated into the kingdom of God uh, now has God working in him. And you see that over and over. Um, this whole section was making questions pop up left and right in my mind. Uh, what you got there, Mick? So, I'm just curious. Uh, since, since, like, okay, the creation story is so... How do I put it? Uh, simple, in a way. You know, it, there's there's not much history to go by at the time of creation, so uh, it's simple. Why uh, why would they put uh, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in relation to Adam and Eve, like you know, man, uh, the very uh, Primitive man, you know. I'm not. I don't mean primitive, but early, right. early man. You know, why? Oh. Why would that be? Well, we know that, of course, Scripture says man was made in the image of God, 
And of course, God is is the God of, of course, He's all knowledge. It doesn't mean, but man could can reason. Man can think uh, on different than what an animal could be. In the image of God, we have uh, we have great knowledge. And Adam and Eve had tremendous knowledge. They weren't tainted by sin whatsoever. Can you imagine the knowledge that they had when they were created? Much more than than we we have now. Uh, sin hadn't entered. Can you imagine what it did though when it tainted them? Um, Righteousness. They they were righteous. They had um, they had no sin in them, and they they were made in the very image of God. Um, you know, sinless at that time, but with the possibility to sin, which God then gives them in the command, and and then they show that well, yeah, they are not God. <laughs> uh, positionally, they were righteous in a way, uh, but actively is, is sort of what I was wondering. About. Uh, Did they only do good? Because that's that obviously. Well, until until sin happened, yeah. Right. And he made them that way. True holiness. They were set apart. They were without sin. He didn't create them with sin, but there was the possibility. But and so in that sense, there was the the purity that they had. Uh, they sought after God. They talked with Him. They walked with Him. Um, how long that went, we don't know. Um, but when that time came, God, of course, gives the command. And that, that brings on our next uh, part, uh, say, true holiness, having the law of God written in their hearts. That, that was my next question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what, what exactly? So he instilled it. Of course, as they conversed with him and as they saw his creation, they didn't. Uh, they didn't have the desire to be disobedient. They desired God's ways. He put that, uh, and it even even today it says in Romans, there there's a law written on uh, people's hearts in R- Romans two. The the one without the law, they st- they know, they know the difference between right and wrong. There's a law there. Now that doesn't mean that they are saved, but it does mean that they have their their own the law still yet there that they're responsible for yeah. that God puts in every conscience. And they had the living word right then. That yeah. Was, I mean they were living with, walking and, and with talking God, there. They were living with the living word. So that's where the written as a heart thing. They knew him in a way that um we, would uh, you know they they weren't um they weren't glorified, you know. They 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 weren't at that point. Um, obviously, no no man has been glorified yeah. in that sense. But uh, in the state of innocence, they were in a very good position, weren't they? Uh, knowledge, righteousness, true holiness, the, the the law written in their hearts, and the power to fulfill it. Uh, they could fu- they fulfill God's law. They were obedient till disobedience came, and yet under the possibility of transgressing. God gave them that being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. So they, uh, and of course they proved that. And that's that's where this this next one comes in. Does that does that help there a little bit? Yeah. You know, th- yeah. There was not only a, a righteousness put in them, but there was the practical righteousness there too. Okay. You make Adam and Eve a lot more simplified than. 
They That's look, what I keep thinking of. Yeah, yeah, pictures. you keep going to that simple cartoon thing. It's like, no, it really does never does it justice to what was really going on. Yeah, well, think of the intelligence that Adam had. He thought of the names of the animals, and it's just like those names of those animals exist really today. Evolution species because the they keep sort of getting better. No, we're, we're winding down. It's just the opposite. So what, whoever you think is the most intelligent being, person that you know on this earth, is nothing to what Adam and Eve held within their intelligence. And, stuff like and then so having that righteousness yeah. and, of course, you know, knowing God and talking with Him. Yeah. Okay, uh, besides the law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, they were happy in their communion with God and their dominion over the creatures. So we see, of course, we know the problem. Uh, the ultimate test of an act of piety of one is uh, the genuine desire to obey. And then the point comes where they disobeyed the only command that God gives them, right? And uh, so when you think of Him giving them that, and now they had done that for the first time. Can you imagine everything changed? You know, I mean, I think think of weather, you know. Of course, the uh, thistles, the weeds. Well, yeah, you talk about something about the creation. That's that's the shame part of it for the creation, that for what man did, it pays for corrupted everything. Not only did it corrupt man, but it created all the creation was crushed. And as he had first done, he made everything good, and now it, everything is tainted. It's amazing, even in God's creation, which is tainted, how beautiful it can still be. You know, you think of the fall colors or spring when it happens, even a beautiful snow. You know, even despite the fact that there's sin, how God still has beauty in things that look, uh, you know, tainted and, and are. Um, well, that brings us, I think, to the next one then, which is is providence. And this is an amazing thing. By the way, there are questions. That, what is the work of creation? Work of creation is God making all things out of nothing by the Word of God. It's all good. Anyway, that's those are scriptures. That would be, you know, like the, the catechism to that. Uh, here's divine providence. And there's seven points to it. I don't know how we'll ever get that many tonight, but see what happens. God, the good Creator of all things in His infinite power and wisdom, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things, from the greatest even to the least, by His most wise and holy providence, to the end for which they were created, according unto His infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of His own will to the praise of the glory of His wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Wow. Okay. This is uh, the first cause. The next point number two will be the second cause. This is the first cause, and and it's God Himself. Of course, He upholds everything. He has the power. He has the wisdom. He disposes of. He governs everything. I mean, this is a high view of God. If you told somebody off the street like this, they'd think you were nuts. You know, 
that that he is governing everything and he's wise and he's holy he he has providential care i mean this this providence of god is an amazing thing uh truly incredible and it, and within it works where there are miracles providence is uh, is immense uh, God upholds everything I can think of, like Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verse, maybe verse 2, verse 3, probably, there where it talks about Christ. And verse 3 says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of his sins, he sat down at the right hand of Majesty on high. There he upholds all things. He keeps things together. <laughs> he keeps this world together, right? You know, the, all the elements and such. I can think of uh, Colossians one, um, where in verse sixteen, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17 um, So He created, as we see Colossians says that, and He holds everything together. What keeps the universe from just blowing apart? How about those atoms? Shouldn't they do that? Yeah. Well, it's Christ who keeps them together. And then He talks about the church. So, uh, in section 2... Um, what he's saying at this point so far is God is the first cause. And as we move into the, 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 the second section, we'll see not only is he the source of all these, but and, and he has the means to the goal, to the end, and he's going to use second causes. He's the first cause. He could just make it happen and not even use creation. But he, we've already touched on creation now. And so now we look at what he does with um, this creation and his providence. Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly so that there is not anything befalls any by chance or without his providence. Yet by the same providence he ordered them to fall out according to the nature of second causes either necessarily, freely, or contingently. So we know that he's in charge and control of everything. He's the first cause. But then he uses second causes and to allow things to pass ultimately Whatever he brings to pass, he's going to use the means. He's going to use his creation. He's going to use people. He will use his people. He will use people that are not his people. Um, so this is where providence really comes into play. Um, I wouldn't be here today if this hadn't been decreed before the foundation of the world. Yet I'm the one who's doing this. Um... I'm not violated by God's will whatsoever, right? I'm not manipulated by God in any way of Him making me do that like an outside force and uh, I'm a puppet. 
but it comes out of my heart, my mind, uh, my will. I'm a second cause. But also, He works in me as I work it out. So one event also depends upon another. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for my parents and how they raised me, maybe, or you know, however they, you know, they they maybe wouldn't. Yeah, that (laughs) right, moving from Elda, Missouri, to Jefferson City, Missouri, or in this area, and all the different things that come into play. I can think there could be thousands of those things. He manages that millions of things, and yet here we sit tonight, and it's not by accident. And it's the same for you. You know, how He has brought you along in His walk with Him and all that you do. There's a whole string of second causes. And that is even more amazing than just a straight, direct miracle. He uses just things that we can, we can think of and thousands of things that we can't think of. And, and the thing is, it's working out his plan and purpose. That goes beyond my mind. Um, he's called the Grand Weaver. Ravi Zacharias wrote a book dealing with that. And his design, he, he has woven all this. And we can only think of certain things. We could probably think of hundreds of things, how he's worked in our lives to get us where we're at. We, ne- we would have never chosen this thing, that thing. I wouldn't imagine that we would have been sitting here Ten years ago, five years ago, or thirty years ago, it really wasn't in my plan that this happened. God decreed that, but yet it was still me who my personality that He still put together, and how it all runs together. Where does Dennis Helton drop off and and God? Well, they should just run together, and don't worry about that. It'll drive you crazy. Uh, you'll be underneath the bed reciting the Greek alphabet. And <laughs> but isn't it amazing? God using second causes. Let's see. There's a whole lot of conversation there, but we won't go there. Because <laughs> yeah. how come He causes one and not the other to do what one does? Yeah. God in His ordinary providence makes use of means, yet is free to work without, above, and against them at His pleasure. <laughs> so He uses means. We've already seen that. And uh, he, he usually operates by second causes. That's how God usually works. But He can exert sometimes His power. He can come in and do something supernatural. And He does do that. It's called miracles. The confession, surprisingly here, doesn't mention the word miracles here, but this is really kind of what it's talking about. When He sometimes intervenes, it's a miracle, isn't it? The supernatural comes into the natural realm. In the Old Testament, you'll see the word signs. God used signs. You can think of Moses. Moses in the uh, wilderness uh, um, sees a burning bush. burning bush wouldn't have attracted him. But the burning bush keeps on burning and it doesn't consume itself. Now he's got the attention. And of course, God uh, actually speaks to him from there. 
but he wouldn't have stopped had it not been for that supernatural aspect where he comes into the natural world that we know. Only God can do that. There are special occasions, and that's, you know, when it runs naturally, it's he's using second causes. Sometimes there's the first cause. Boom. But he's going to use second causes in there. Um, incredible thought, isn't it? Power at any time, right? And, and of course, that's this, this fourth one that uh, brings about the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, an infinite goodness of God so far manifests themselves in His providence that His determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also He most wisely and powerfully binds and otherwise orders and governs in a manifold dispensation to His most holy ends, yet so as to sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author or approver of sin. He never causes us to sin. And so the Westminster Confession here does not shy away. It rather takes the bull by the horns here there's a question that has to be asked. It's the most difficult of all questions. Well, if God is sovereign, what about sin? Of course, I think we talked about this last week. He ordains sin, which He hates. There's nothing out of the scope of God, not even sin. Because if He didn't ordain that then does he have control over it? He's not the author of sin. We have to say, that. Well, what's the difference between ordaining and authoring? Right. We know that God does not, he is not tempted, and he will not make any person sin. He does not do that. He's not connected in that sense. Um, but it doesn't say that he doesn't have anything to do with it. Um, he details it here. Uh, he will punish it. He ordains it. And that means, if you want to put it down to a simple term, you could say, well, he allows that. Uh, it, it, and it's even more than allowing. It's part of the plan, and he will use it for good. Of course, you have to think of Romans 8.28 then. God works all things together for good. Um, rather difficult. This is a difficult passage here that we just read um, where he talked about sinful actions, both of angels and men. If he's a sovereign God, why didn't he just keep sin from uh, coming into this universe? He could have done that. But God is God. No, he, he didn't do that. So therefore, that's the only thing. This was the best thing that could have been done. You, you take the worst crime ever. What's the worst crime ever? The Son of God comes to earth and mankind kills Him. Yet, at the same time, this is all God's plan. The worst sin that ever happened, which was foreordained before the foundation of the world, that gets your mind spinning. Well, and doesn't it say in Isaiah 53 that it pleased Him? 
It pleased to crush his son. Because that is what paid for his elect's sins. And he's the only one that could do it. He was the only righteous one. The very betrayal of the Son of God. Uh, there's Judas, you know, and how, how that uh, fit in. Um, but, you know, that wickedness and, and evil and such that came across on the Son of God, uh, that brought about our salvation. And, of course, he punishes the evildoer. He punishes evil. Uh, I have to think of Acts chapter 2, an incredible passage that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. And I think we've been over this many, many times. In verse 23, Peter speaking about the Messiah, speaking about Christ, the Son of God. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan, that's Praharidzo, and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But God raised Him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. So it was a predetermined plan. It was a foreknowledge of God. This was done before the foundation of the world. The Lamb, right, brought up last week was in his mind for all of this, you know, all the creation. It was the plan. It's it's the that foreknowledge of God. But he said, you nailed to a cross. Godless men did that. But yet it was God's plan. How do you put that into play? How, how does this work together, right? Of course, it's the same kind of thing when you think of the man-God. Well brought up Judas the Lord said about him it had been better if he was never born if he never existed but yet God still <laughs> allowed him to be <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, that's that really gets it every single person lawless men uh, they had to be born around that time you know and they were going to be there's going to be maybe even Saul might have been among their midst you know. and then you think of that you think of the Jews and you think of the Romans so you have the Jews right, and the, the way Gentiles the empires were, were the Roman Empire was at the time right using the crucifixion uh-huh. right and then you think down through time to us we put him to death ultimately that's who he died for yeah. and our sins did that wow. of course the, the death of death and of course that's where you get into a limited atonement there but um, anyway uh, God ordained sin. He's not the author of it. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is probably the most famous for the one who said that. He ordains it because good comes out of it. It's, it's his plan. It's hard to imagine. 
But if it came in and God said, oh my, I didn't expect this to happen. Now I've got to come up with a plan. Uh, And we've said many times, we would never understand grace. We would never understand mercy. We could never understand the love of God at all had it not been for something so evil and so wicked, and yet He can turn all of that into good. And that's the whole idea, is that He can turn it into good, and He does. I have a question. For us. Does deism allow for any involvement of God whatsoever? On, on God's initiative rather than us or or even us like praying and asking him to intervene yeah isn't that interesting I think even the deist would have prayed but right. why would they pray if they're saying that God winds it up steps back and then lets man lets the second cause do everything right. else because he's already done his work he's finished now it's up to man which is really humanism wow. isn't it right it, it would have to be and so you take it to ultimately they make themselves out to be their gods because they, they made God out to be something different than what scripture says right there's no like no foundation you can find in scripture for that yeah. exactly and yet that's, that's where man is. wants to go yeah. if they do believe in some God and in God they can okay he created or, yeah, there's someone you know who's in control a little bit, but it's up to me now, whatever I do. And of course, we are to make decisions. We are, but yet, He gives us the desires of our hearts. Why do we have those desires? Well, who put those into us? Well, as believers, it's what He's gifted us with. And what th- those desires, if it's based upon God's Word, are good things, aren't they? And so He continues to work in us. He's very much alive. How could we have an ongoing relationship with Him? And that's really what it takes in too, doesn't it? It's not a personal relationship with God. They believe, okay, He created. Now we have to take care of the rest. That's futile, isn't it? That's really futile. And those would be the same people that say, I have trouble with God being sovereign over all things. You you look at that kind of theology and that leaves you in despair. Yeah. There's really no answer. A lot of people want answers to things. Well, yeah. if, you, if you believe just that God is good and all powerful, like if God would send us a son, that that makes sense of everything. You know, it's like then you have a you have an answer to your emotional problems. You got an answer to your mental problems. You know, your why can't I grasp what's going on? You know, well. Because God is, it puts things to rest. His truth, an His yeah. truth, and His Spirit will give us uh, the peace that we need, mm-hmm. the peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah. To His people, right? Um, so we just did four, right? Well, you want to do one more real quickly here? Yeah. Or you want to stop here? We'll do we'll do five, and because uh, this kind of I need to. This is not easy to work with. One of these days I'll make this better. <laughs> I'm kind of getting a little car sick here. <laughs> it's like a-
at least we have a screen working. The most wise, righteous, and gracious God does oftentimes leave for a season His own children to manifold temptations and the corruptions of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon Himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for other just and holy needs so that whatsoever befalls any of His elect is by His appointment for His glory and their good. So, section 5 says, as long as we're in the universe and before He destroys it, His children nevertheless are allowed to fall into sin. I think Christians have to agree with that. Um, Yes, even with respect to our sins. We go through a wilderness here in this world, just like the children of Israel went through a wilderness till they reached the promised land. We go through a wilderness so that we'd be prepared for heaven or the promised land. We realize how the remaining corruptions are still here and we need the total dependence upon God. And He was the most wise, righteous, and gracious to do that and to leave us here in a world that's still torn with sin and even as new creatures were still incarcerated in the flesh battling sin for uh, the rest of our lives till Christ comes back, go to be with Him, We know the corruptions and we hate it. We hate sin, don't we? And the more that we hate sin, we're humbled by it. We're humbled by God. And we desire not to sin. We live totally on independence uh, upon Him. I guess that leaves us with section 6 and we'll start next week. That'll be dealing with... um, the hardness of heart. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart, but yet Pharaoh hardens his heart? How did God harden the heart? How can God be righteous and harden someone's heart? And so we'll get into that kind of question. This section that we're dealing with in the providence of God is uh, tackling some rather difficult questions, isn't it? Very difficult. And it's a short little treatise, when you think about it, these are high doctrines of God and they're like paragraphs. But it's it, they're so detailed, you can see why it took as long as it did for them to get together and say, here's what we believe. Yeah, Barb. At the beginning of that one where it says that oftentimes leaves for a season to those children and so on and so forth, is there a specific scripture that comes to your mind? Yeah, when that's been well, you know, okay, let's go back to, you can think of Abraham, for instance. Okay, God comes to him. God reveals himself to him. He was a pagan before that. And he believes God. It's counted him as righteousness. As later on, he looks to, you know, he looks to the stars and believes God. Uh but yet in his sojourning, 
where he left his homeland. He encountered some situations. Of course, uh, of course, he and his wife, and of course, where he told a half lie or half truth. Um, and of course, there were a lot of things that came along in those situations. But all during that time, he continued to believe in God. Now, he's an example of of a believer, but he doesn't. He didn't know where he's going, and yet he he sinned. We know that Abraham sinned, and at the same time. God is preparing him to do to do the ultimate, and he shows that his works were shown nearly much later in his life whenever he was told to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac. And he was willing to do that. Abraham was left, except for certain times when God would show himself to him. He's out there you know, just sojourning, doing the pilgrimage with really no real home, living in tents. And at one time, he was a rather, he was a very wealthy man, and he brought a lot of that wealth with him, but uh, that's just an Old Testament example. Um, We know in... uh, But there's not a specific scripture that says that. Well, I I think your Romans 8.28... Okay. All things work together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Because it's it's gearing to... And that comes right after the section of Romans 7. Of course, Romans 8, we, you have all the, those 28 verses there. But you remember in Romans 7 where He is battling sin. <laughs> and He knows it is within Him that where that sin, that battle that goes on. Um, and he gets and he reaches verse 24 and he says this it's almost like the apex of, of where this battle of sin is at and he says wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death he knew this enemy that he was uh, going against and it, and it was his flesh it was what was uh, the principle of evil it says in 21 it is present in me the one who wants to do good. I want to do good, but I'm still battling this sin, this evil, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body. We're, we're held in the place of the body. I mean, our, our new man, right? And this members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members in this flesh wretched man that I am who will set me free from the body of this death and then this is an introduction that where chapter 8 just explodes right at the end of 7 thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. There's the battle. There's the struggle. And then Romans 8.1 Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not condemned, even though we have this battle. And he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who, who will deliver me? Well, of course, the answer is in chapter 8, verse 1, or 
verse 25, Jesus Christ, right? And then Romans 8, the jewel of, of the New Testament, it just stands out and he talks about the Holy Spirit who changes things in our lives and uh, about us being heirs and sons of God and we go from suffering to glory. And uh, verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness for we do not know how to pray as we should but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So as we are so been dealing with, with sin and its battles and, and we're weak and we're about knocked out, we realize the Holy Spirit's praying for us. We can't even think of anything to pray and the Holy Spirit's praying for us. Christ is our intercessor. He's praying for us. And we can't even pray. And it's like the disciples who are in the Garden of Gethsemane and they're falling asleep. Jesus says, get up. You know, pray with me. And they go right back to sleep. Well, we don't even know what to pray for. And there He is. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now with all the decrees and looking at that, there it is in time when we're at the biggest need and we, whether we're weak, we're, we're sinful, all of these things, we've been praying and now we don't even know how to pray, what to pray, and He's still working for us. And then we see that it's still all for good. And He's going to use those things. He's going to use all of that. On that note, I think, are you asking about God leaving us for a season? That's sort of your question. Uh, okay, well, James one thirteen and on. Uh, that's, I think, it does, I'm going to fill in the blank here. What see what it what it means by God leaving us for season? Uh, no one undergoing a trial should say, "I am being tempted by God," for God is not tempted by evil, and He Himself doesn't tempt anyone. And then here's here are those trials or seasons. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. And after desires, conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And there's uh, temptations and corruptions of their own hearts. And then where the discipline comes in with chastisement is uh, Hebrews 12, uh, 3. Uh, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. And struggling against sin, you just mentioned the battle, uh, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son whom he receives. Endure it as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are not illegitimate children, not sons. And then it goes on. Yeah, it's good. His, it's for our benefit so that we can share His holiness. So that I think that's where the whole section is coming from. Very good.
Very good. Uh, what, what about like Paul, uh, the Second Corinthians 12, where he has a messenger of Satan to torment him and keep him from exalting himself? Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might lead me, and he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. There he's wondering, you know, Lord, why? You know, you know, I prayed to you, right? It seems like he's out there in the wilderness. God's not doing anything about it. And God then says, My grace is sufficient, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'll rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And there's the whole deal, that the power of Christ would, would be seen in His glory. So we're to be content with our weaknesses and uh, insults, distresses, persecutions with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong so that God would get the glory and it's always for our good. Exactly, your Hebrews 12 right there. Exactly. So he's doing that even when it doesn't even seem like we're getting, we're hearing anything from him. It seems like he's further than he's ever been. It doesn't even seem like he's there. One of our elders preached a sermon one day. It's funny you would say that. He compared God to a... Um, like a GPS, you know, that talks to you, and you're driving along on a highway for a hundred miles, and you're just going straight, and that thing is silent the whole time, almost to the point where you forget it's on, and then suddenly you get closer to your destination, and it's going to say, in 100 feet, turn right. <laughs> and he kind of said, you know, sometimes God does that. And there you go. We 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 don't hear from him directly but he's still watching over for us yeah season. and dictating our every move and then just when you need it he'll make himself apparent no. yeah and that makes us trust him more we live by faith and not by sight he's teaching that's good yeah that's that fits right in very very good thank you there Barb. Well, let's, uh, and then when we get prayer. in the sin, we don't pay attention and we try to shut it off. Right? Yeah, have a, the Jesus take the wheel song. You know? <laughs> he needs to be there in the car with me, not just the GPS. <laughs> you drive. Yeah, you drive this one. I don't know where I'm going. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these what are called basic truths of Scripture, but yet so profound. And You are so much bigger than any of our thoughts. Thank You for watching over us, controlling these situations, and yet at the same time, You put these desires in our heart to do uh, Your will. And Lord, we uh, take comfort in these tremendous, awesome doctrines. You get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.